Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome back to A House on Fire, the podcast series exploring the book, A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. My name's Nathan Brown. I'm a book editor and co-editor of this particular book and um, have the opportunity to work with Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices to put this series of conversations uh, with the various contributors to the book uh, together and uh, to share it with you. So that's an exciting thing. Thank you for joining us again. Joining us also again as a co-host is Dr. Lisa Clark Diller. Um, Clark, Lisa Clark Diller, that's not hard to say. And, um, <laughs> and Professor of History at Southern Adventist University. Welcome, Lisa. Uh, it's good to be here, Nathan. And our special guest for this particular episode is the person who wrote the first real chapter of the book, uh, Dr. Janice DeWhite. Welcome. Thank you, Nathan. Lovely to be here and chat with you and Lisa this evening. So Janice is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Associate Professor of Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, whichever way you want to phrase that, uh, at the School of Religion at Loma Linda University. How long have you been doing that for? Oh, it's coming up to 10 years now. Okay. And so are you a career academic or have you, have you been a pastor or a chaplain or any of those kind of things in a former life? I did, um, yeah. In my former life, I, I trained um, through the seminary and so um, on the clergy track, I um, pastored for a little while, um, also involved in uh, campus um, chaplaincy as well. Uh, youth and young adult ministry. So um, definitely had my foot there in um, both the parish and academic contexts. Mm -hmm. Your accent also tells me something a little bit about your background. Um, it's not an American one, um, and I don't think it's Australian. Um, tell us where your, your heritage, your accentual heritage, if that's a word. <laughs> Yes, I am a Londoner, um, mm -hmm. hailing from um, West London, England, and, um, you know, just, I mean, I'm biased, but definitely, I think, one of the greatest cities in the world. So um, <laughs> I grew up there, and also my um, my foot is in both worlds, as um, I'm also Ghanaian um, ethnicity. My family uh, is uh, from Ghana, and so I've always lived in those two worlds of um, being a Ghanaian British uh, woman. So definitely um, a great place to, to grow up in. So Ghanaian British Californian. That's yes. A, that, yes. That's an extra leg. We just, we just call them, we just call them Americans now. <laughs> like I told, I told my friend, New Zealand friend who, who married a Romanian uh, child of a, a Romanian immigrant and now lives in Southern California. I was like, and now your children are Americans. Like this is what happens. You know? <laughs> yeah. like, we have, Absolutely. We have Absolutely. Yeah. That's I just cool. spent two weeks in London, Janice. I just got back two days ago. It hasn't rained since the coronation. 
And I took my sister-in-law who, who had not been to the UK before. And we spent 17 days there and it was sunshine the whole time. I was like, this is weird. Just so you know, like we're having a great time and I'm, it's all wonderful. And it is a great place. Also, the weather is not usually like this. So <laughs> yes, that that's an important qualification. <laughs> you know, we, we deal with the weather. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the disadvantages, but we deal with it um, because everything else is, you know, it's just a, such a vibrant place to be um, culturally, you know, mm. so much um, to, to, to learn and, and kind of um, immerse yourself in. So um, yeah. Minus the weather, of course. <laughs> that is cool. Well, thank you for talking to us today. And we need to move beyond just talking about the weather as, as great as that can be. Um, your chapter in A House on Fire. That's so British um, of me, Nathan. Sorry. I think we you know, <laughs> get caught up talking about the weather for days. <laughs> <laughs> your chapter in A House on Fire is a different kind of, um, it's, it's not really weather. It's, you talk about um, burning down the house. Um, to some degree, your chapter contributed significantly to us settling upon the title of the book. Um, what are you talking about when you're talking about a house on fire? Thank you, um, Nathan. I think the chapter on burning Bethel really focuses on this fiery ultimatum that is in the prophetic work of Amos, where um, God is characterized as saying, you know, people need to change, um, change their lives, change the way they treat others, kind of have an orientation toward righteousness as in justice, as in being or embodying um, the character of God. Um, and they need to change to do this or else uh, the prof prophetic proclamation goes, um, God is going to, you know, burn it all down. Now, interestingly enough, the target of the fiery ultimatum is this place Bethel, right, um, which has become this important religious site um, and really the epitome of um of religious orthodoxy. People are going there, they're able to offer their sacrifices and offerings. They're doing a really great job in terms of the religious services um, and liturgy that is laid out, uh, you know, in, in Torah. They're doing great mm. on that. But disturbingly, in the same vein as they're doing great in terms of their orthodoxy, the, the, the social and the political and the economic uh, realm or the aspects of their lives are really, you know, uh, appalling. Um, and they're able to, on one hand, upkeep all the liturgy and the religious rituals and services and so on that are required um, in Torah, but then forgetting... Um, you know, as Jesus might characterize it, the weightier matters of the law, which mm. essentially is justice. Um, and so this idea of burning Bethel really comes out of Amos's prophetic proclamation. You can find that in chapter five and verses four through six, where um, God says, you know, seek me and live. Um, mm. Don't seek Bethel. Don't 
fixate on that. Seek me and live or else, you know, I'm going to rush out like a fire and all these things that you treasure are really just going to go up in smoke. So that's uh, that was the idea behind this chapter, Burning Bethel. Hmm. It really was shocking, Janice. Like, I mean, I like as somebody, I mean, I've, I've read Amos before, mm-hmm. but like when I think of Bethel, when I hear the words Bethel, if anyone said like that, I assume this is a good place. This is a godly place. Like if, you know, our family would name our houses, you know, in the farms that we grew up in and often they chose biblical names or Hebrew names yeah. and Bethel would have been a great name for that, you know, and like to, like, I had no idea, like it hadn't cl- clocked with me that like what happened to this godly place that is the center of worship that is like so important like what 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 happened you're so right lisa i think um you know you're on point there that bethel is this place where people meet god and it is this remarkable place in ancestral history when we think about the fact that you know jacob has this amazing dream of um this ladder that bridges earth and heaven, you know, and, and angels are ascending and descending and there God promises him, you know, I'm going to be with you and I will do all that I've promised and I won't leave you until I've done all of that. And as we trace Bethel through, um, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we, we do recognize, you know, that this is the place where there's a school of the prophets as well. People are being trained there to discern the voice of God, to, um, be able to preach. You know, it's, it's a seminary essentially, uh, of, of, of sorts that's there. Um, so you're absolutely correct that this is in ancestral history, a place where God shows up and meets people. Mm. Um, and I think that may be uh, something that, you know, can be a caution for communities of faith mm. because we do tend to, you know, get entrenched in sort of our histories. And while it is true that in our histories, great things have happened and we've heard from God and had certain um, relationships and, and revelations, um, you know, of divine nature, we can become complacent in that. Mm. And this is what happens as Bethel um, moves sort of from being this, you know, really important site for spiritual encounters Um to becoming really this place where religion and politics and economics um, come together and where people begin to see that, well, we can leverage this space, you know, this religious uh, realm um, for our own ends. Mm. Um, and so th- this is one of the important things that as we read Amos's um, proclamations, you know, if you imagine it as a sermon series, um, it is, as so you, you framed it, it is shocking, you know, for the visiting speaker to get up in the, uh, you know, in the church and to basically say, um, listen up, everyone. Uh, you know, God is, is actually not pleased and, um, and uh, strongly, you know, he's actually quite disgusted. Uh, with what's going on. Hmm. It's a fascinating concept. And uh, either we don't read the Hebrew prophets as much as we should, or we've read them 
and we kind of take it for granted and don't actually pause to think how confrontational, mm. how jolting it would have been to the people that first heard those messages, and it should be to us. Mm. Uh, but I kind of think that we can get a picture of it from hearing some of the prophetic voices even in our own time that particularly when they get uncomfortable, we we tend to shy away from them. And there was an epigraph that um, I wanted to use in the book. We did use a couple from James Baldwin that connect with the fire next time and, you know, that kind of voice of justice um, or the, yeah, that proclamation of, you know, get your act together or it'll be the fire next time. You know, that's his concluding words of that that uh, book. The other one that I that Maury suggested I probably shouldn't use is um, from James Cohn in his Black Theology, uh, where he talked about, um, you know, of course one doesn't undo justice by burning a few buildings, but one must start somewhere. Mm. And that's really confronting, shocking language to us. And it should be. That... In that actually confronting injustice in the world, whether we're speaking against it or even acting against it, it should be something that is disruptive mm. and you know really confronting and challenging to us and deeply uncomfortable. And I that's why we wanted when we got your chapter and said let's start with that as the opening. Let's hear a voice of a, one of the Hebrew prophets uh, doing this. Because we need to feel that discomfort. How do you think we can, you know, you're a professor of Old Testament Hebrew Bible studies. How can we kind of reclaim that sense of discomfort rather than simply saying these, you know, rather than getting back to needlepoint, pulling out our favorite verses from this prophet or that prophet, how can we actually re reframe them um, to make a mess of that metaphor <laughs> so that they are actually these prophetic, uncomfortable, challenging voices? Great question, Nathan. Um, you're absolutely right that we have lost uh, some of this because we we have, I, I don't think we've read it too much. I, I almost <laughs> feel as if we, we've sort of skipped over it. So, um you know i'm i'm kind of thinking of um the children's bibles um i'm in that stage of life and so i'm you know going through some of these and usually when you see the the children's bible they sort of they might include jonah in there mm -hmm. and then they just skip to the new testament you know <laughs> um, and it's kind of like all the prophetic stuff you know we don't want our kids reading that you know according to some of these bibles um and i mm. you know i don't think it's just the children i think um as adults as well in um in sort of many of our communions we have um shied away from the prophets because Sometimes we're not sure what's going on, but then when we do get an inkling of what might be going on, we, we might say this, this may be too challenging. And um, these words are indeed shocking. They are designed for effect. Um, you know, when you look at the rhetoric that Amos uses, it's very intentional to get his audience to wake up and sit up, you know, and and really confront the issues that they're they're facing. Um, and so what he does is, you know, he begins his sermon chapters 
uh, one and two by talking about the neighbors of, of um, Israel and, you know, and he talks about their sins and they're involved in human trafficking and, um, you know, they've desecrated other people's lands and they're taking what's rightfully not theirs and so on. And you can almost, you know, in, in the tradition that I'm, um, quite a part of, uh, which is the, um, tradition of the black church, you can imagine the preacher standing at the front and he's preaching and people in the audience, you know, preach preacher and tell them. And, you know, and he's getting all these amens and all of that because it's all right. As long as you're talking about the people over there or out there, our neighbors. And he does this and he's talking about all Israel's neighbors, particularly those that they have uncomfortable relationships with. And then once he's kind of got them into this zone of hearing about everybody else's issues, uh, it then comes down to, oh, and for your transgressions, you know, God will not uh, allow you to get off scot-free. And so in terms of the rhetoric, it's designed to draw people in um, to admit that, yes, others have issues, but then to center on the fact that um, so do you, you know, so do we. Um, so I think one of the things that we have to do is really immerse ourselves in the prophetic tradition as we have it in the Bible and recognize that, yes, it is uncomfortable. But if we look at it from this aspect too, I think, would be important is that it is more uncomfortable and more shocking the kinds of injustice that are going on in this world. You know, if if we want to talk about what's really uh, disturbing and shocking um, and should put, you know, hairs on, you know, should make the hairs on our skin stand up, is just the kinds of things that people are having to endure, communities are having to endure because uh, we are looking the other way or because we don't want to follow this biblical uh, call to justice. So what, whatever it is that we're being confronted with uh, through the Hebrew prophets is really to shine a light and to say, look around you. You know, and see the trauma and the toxicity that people are having to go through because the people of God are not just looking the other way, but in some instances, right there involved and causing some of these very um, circumstances. I guess that was one of the things I was going to ask too is like, how do we know, right? If, you know, like, I mean, hopefully we have prophets in our midst. That are calling to this, but like, you know, sometimes it is, it's hard to like, what, what if I, I'm in, sitting in my pew and I, you know, hearing you mention this and, you know, okay, am I in my church? How do I know if my particular denomination or my particular local body of Christ is or isn't needing, needs to deconstruct or be deconstructed or participate in this? How do I need to know if we're turning into Bethel? Like, are there any like, sign mark signposts along the way for us like are you calling us all out collectively like like you know we, we were doing here in the book of saying hey we are all part of this right now um and that is that is part of how we can know like i think the editors starting with your you know setting the stage this way is really useful to be like hey guys 
you might not have thought that it was us, but it can be us, you know, and then, you know, different chapters hit different things. But like, maybe beyond even just about race in North America, or even the world church, like when, how might we know, you know, Pastor DeWitt, you know, uh, how might we know if this is us sometimes doing this? Like, what might be some some signs that we're we're not we're not we're participating in injustice. Yeah. Um, you, when we look at it collectively, I think it's in our context. You know, as um, citizens of the West, I think many times we're very tempted to think, first of all, from the individual perspective. And so, you know, when we're going through this, I think you know, our instincts first and foremost is to say personally, you know, mm. I'm not involved in human trafficking or I haven't, you know, um, sold somebody or, you know, I'm as an individual, I'm not participating in X sin or X um, traumatic situation. But we need to sort of get that communal understanding and and kind of step into that sort of way of looking at life that whether or not we are always willing to claim it, we are part of a community and, and others who are around us, they view us through the, through the lens of our community. Um, And so it's easy for us to say, well, I didn't do it. You know, when it comes to, for example, discrimination, um, racism, um, gender discrimination, you know, it's very tempting for us to say that, well, I don't participate in X, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. uh, instance. But the truth is that we are part of communities, institutions that even if we define, even if we say they haven't actively Uh, done something. The question is, well, what have they done to eradicate or to deconstruct this particular oppression um, or injustice? And for me, that is is something that, you know, it's a truth-telling process that's very difficult, takes extreme honesty for us to look at our history as a church Um, as a community of faith, and to say, what opportunities did we have and do we have to interrupt certain injustices? Um, Have we always utilised those? Or have we perhaps utilised our privilege of silence, um, our privilege of looking the other way? Or in some instances, our privilege of just saying, well, we'll just wait and see what happens. As a clergy person, particularly as a woman in in the parish context, you know, I can think of just how many years ago when I was training to um, to go into the ministry. You know, I didn't hear very many of my male colleagues at that time saying, you know, we support women in ministry. And it sort of came to be that there was a time just several years ago where it seemed to become popular all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, that some 
men in ministry were now using their influence or their platforms to say, well, we believe in women in ministry. And I know that for me and also talking to some of my other um female colleagues it was like well it would have been nice to hear some of this you know years ago um when perhaps there wasn't that much support in some of these areas so sometimes it's not always that we don't end up doing something about the injustice but we kind of want to wait and see how many people are on the bandwagon before we kind of lend our name or our influence to that so there's a couple of terms in your chapter that caught my attention. The first one is in your subtitle, the idea of deconstructing injustice. And, you know, deconstruction is a term that gets bandied around in all sorts of ways and, you know, to the point that it almost means nothing these days. Um, what do you mean when you're talking about deconstructing injustice in this context? Looking at um, systems, looking at institutions, looking from a holistic standpoint about the injustices that are going on. It's important for us to think beyond the interpersonal and to recognise that some of the um, sins or the, you know, a better translation would be rebellion that Amos is prophesying against mm. are really things that have become entrenched um, and go beyond, you know, an incident between uh, two people mm -hmm. or um, kind of it, this interpersonal um, circumstances that arise. And so we have things like he's, he's condemning human trafficking. Mm. Um, he's condemning things like people being denied justice because of their marginal status the fact that they don't have what it takes to pay bribes, mm -hmm. um, the fact that their cases aren't really the concern of those who are to be enacting justice. Mm. Um, for example, in Amos chapter 2, verse 7, you have um, a, a notice about sexual exploitation being perpetrated by a father and a son. You know, it speaks to those who use their partnerships and, their relationships even um, in, you know, to, to abuse others. And while some of these can be seen as, of course, incidences that happen between two or three individuals, they really are being enabled because there's a system that's in place that is making it easier for those who abuse and harder for those who are the abused. Mm -hmm. So when I'm speaking about deconstructing injustice, it's really about looking at the pieces of the puzzle, you know, but recognizing that there is this entire puzzle. Mm. Um, there is this entire system that we need to be aware of. And so when we think about it in our modern context, in terms of anti-racism, we've got to look at the history um, that we are part of and not just of our nation, but the history of our faith community, mm -hmm. the history of the institutions to which we belong. As we are looking at that, we are participating um, in that sense in a deconstruction because we are not 
um, just staying at this interpersonal level and saying, well, because, you know, on this day, I haven't said this mean thing to somebody, um, (laughs) then therefore it means that my work is done. We've got to kind of get um, get holistic. Mm. Um, And that means, you know, we've got to be willing to deconstruct injustice on all levels, Um, recognizing that, you know, when we talk about anti-racism as well, we, we, you know, we're we're thinking about gender and class. Um, It's it's really a very big picture that we've got to address here. Um, So that's some of what I'm trying to um, capture as I'm thinking about deconstructing injustice. Mm. When, when is it time to burn it down? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been time, you know, Lisa, it's, it's, you know, we're over time, we're past time. Um, if, if, if we think about, you know, this is Amos prophesying in the eighth century, um, BCE. So, you know, we, we are definitely, um, past time here and, and one would think that as people of faith, especially, um, we would have long, you know, gotten the message and, and kind of been this, um, epitome of justice. And, and while there's great work being done, there's good work of justice being done. I think all of us can recognize that there's so much more to be done. Um, not just in the world as we like to, to frame it sometimes, but even at home, um, in, in the community. Mm. One of the things I wonder when we talk about this language of God's just judgment, you know, the the Hebrew prophets that talked, you know, this burning down the house kind of language. And often, you know, we our first thing is, you know, God smiting, you know, the smite button or whatever that might be, the lightning bolt that comes down. But do you think there's also in the in the message of the prophets this kind of argument or even just pointing out that injustice is unsustainable that when we base a system whether it's an economy or a political system or a society or cultural systems on exploiting other people and dehumanizing people that it actually tends to simply destroy itself do you think that's part of the message or do we simply need to leave this to you know this is divine providence divine judgment whatever or is there some message here that we simply can't keep doing this thing because it's not human. Absolutely. It's, it's, it goes against who God designed us to be. Um, being in the image of God, you know, includes having an orientation toward justice. Uh, I firmly believe that. And so as we are participating in injustice, we are, you know, becoming, uh, we are moving toward becoming um, soulless. You know, we are losing that humanity. We are dehumanizing ourselves as well. Mm. And this is part of what we recognize as we as we think about uh, racism and we think about other forms of oppression and injustice is that it impacts those who are being abused and it impacts those who are abusing and oppressing as well. And um, this is clear, for example, when uh, God says to um, his people, 
through Amos's words. And he says, look, I brought you out of Egypt. You know, I, I brought you um, here and I had a vision of um, who you will be as a people. And I've done all these things to kind of put you in this prime position to heal and to um, reach out and to, to be like me in the world. And you're going against all of that. Mm. Um, and this is what makes it even more of a sin uh, for the people of God because they are to be like him in the world. So for us who are part of, you know, various faith communities, it is important for us to, to, to recognize that we lose something of the divine design for our humanity when we participate in these things and when we recognize that others are being dehumanized and it sort of doesn't hit home for us or we 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 think well it's not really my issue or my cause you know um that that in itself is lending us on this you know on this path taking us down this path where uh, we become less and less sensitized mm. um, uh, to the extent that, you know, like the people that Amos is addressing to the extent that we can still participate very well, very comfortably in our religious lives and duties without sort of being connected to these um, issues of injustice whatsoever. Mm. So the other phrase that caught my attention in your chapter was interrupting racism. What do you mean by that and how can we do it? Oh, I wish I could <laughs> say that I have all the answers, but <laughs> I think, you know, a, a, a few things that um, I've sort of been invested in um, in terms of my um, work um, as you as you noted, I I do um, I'm a biblical scholar, um, and so I do teach theology um, for those who you know who have been um, called to sort of religious service um, in in parish contexts or perhaps chaplaincy, but also part of my um, job is also teaching religion and um, Bible theology to those who are not going into a particular um, sort of religious vocation per se, but they're going into various healthcare professions and healing professions. And one of the things that I want to sensitize um, students and sort of professionals in healthcare contexts is to think about their work as healers um, not just in the clinical sense of, you know, coming up with diagnoses and treatments and so on, but seeing themselves as practitioners and people who can interrupt all sorts of injustices that their patients and clients may be processing. Mm. And so I think it's very important for us to recognize that whatever vocation we're a part of, we have tools and we have life experience experiences and we have spheres of influences where every day we can through what we do interrupt racism so for a teacher that might look like introducing your students to various thinkers who are not 
just the traditional sort of uh, 10 philosophers or biblical scholars that, you know, everyone's always quoted. Um, it might look like, you know, your, your syllabus being slightly different than what students expect because you want to sort of um, expose them to, you know, different points of view that will help them to de deconstruct um, various uh, spheres and various aspects of injustices. You know, as a healthcare professional, in a particular, you know, context, it might look like you recognizing that your patient is not just a non-compliant pain in, you know, pain in your life, right? But they are navigating various issues of um, access and um, support that, you know, other patients of yours may take for granted. Um, and so I think it's very important for us in whatever vocation we're part of to sort of find the different ways that we um, all can interrupt racism. And if you if we think about having a conversation with someone and um, interrupting someone, you know, that that can be it can be the end of the conversation, but sometimes it can also be a segue into other interesting uh, lines of thoughts in the conversation. So when we think about interrupting racism, we're not simply talking about someone who goes around pointing out instances of racism, but someone also who sees themselves as a dialogue partner, who wants to participate in education, who wants to participate in connections and sort of drawing people um, in and participating with others as well to continue um, the work. It, it's certainly not a solo uh, project um, mm. whatsoever. It's, it's definitely a conversation and a dialogue that happens um, and needs to continue happening. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. I appreciate that. And how, you know, I guess the example of how you're seeking to practice even in the very specialized field that you work in. <laughs> uh, but I guess as a student of the Hebrew prophets um, and a scholar of the Hebrew prophets even, um, we talk about our church being a prophetic church. If we take their tradition, what would it mean for our church to be a prophetic church? It means... <laughs> some of what we've been talking about. I think we we have gotten used to, as a church, um, saying things like, um, we don't get involved in politics. You know, I, <laughs> I, think, I think this is more of an issue in North America. I mean, if, if we look at, for example, um, Seventh-day Adventist context around the world, um, you know, you have uh, people going into politics, you have prime ministers who are Seventh-day Adventists, you know, you have um, uh, ambassadors. And, you know, I think there's something interesting about North American Seventh-day Adventism that has sort of developed into this idea of being apolitical, mm. um, of, you know, of, well, we do our work of justice through, you know, healthcare and through education. Um, but we're not sort of going to get too deep into economics or other issues that might be seen as contentious or political um, or controversial. And for me, this is something that um, 
Of course, I understand that some uh, genuinely have been put off by sort of the whole bipartisan um, us the versus them and so on. But I think we've lost something by trying to see ourselves as apolitical. Mm-hmm. When we think about the prophets, they are, you know, they are in the newspapers. They are, <laughs> they are aware of current events. You know, they are repeating what the news headlines are to the congregation because they don't want the congregation to sort of get into this um, uh, uh, sort of, um, what should I say, this safe bubble where they where they only define themselves by you know the good things they did last week or last year or in the last decades um there's constantly more to be done and so the prophets are continuing to talk about things that are happening because they want people to have that in the forefront of their minds Mm. so i think one of the things that we have to um cease and desist you know and i know that i've i've talked to people um in my context and trying to understand what is this about? Why is it that you you think that in order to be a faithful Christian, you have to be apolitical um, and that you have to kind of not make certain people feel uncomfortable and it's always got to be um, roses and, you know, what, where does that come from? Because it's certainly not you know, from the prophets. And (laughs) if indeed we are claiming the prophetic legacy, then we've got to sort of get rid of this uh, brand of apolitical Christianity and really recognize that, you know, we are right there uh, in the trenches, caring about everything from food deserts to healthcare inequities, um, to racism and, you know, and the list goes on. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a powerful thing and a, and a real challenge, I think, to the church. And, I mean, part of, I think, is that we've actually, one of the reasons historically that this is a uniquely Adventist thing is because we grew in America mm-hmm. and that our church, in other parts of the world, our church is much more shaped by its particular culture um, and that's why the church is much more engaged. But I guess part of my argument, and I think I may even make this in my chapter in A House on Fire, is that that means that as an Adventist church worldwide, we don't have a well-formed theology of how to do political engagement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in some of those nations where our church is much more engaged in the political processes, you know, Papua New Guinea has an Adventist as a prime minister and the Solomon Islands as well. Um, I think Jamaica has uh, has had or has people in high offices like that. We actually as a church don't give them a good theology for doing that uh, because we haven't done the work and we've started with the assumption that we don't do it and so when we do it, we don't do it well. And I feel like it's also because we, in the United States, our politics, um, the way our political system is set up, a lot of times we have just, we have wanted, like there has been on all kind of sides of the pol- of politics, n- the disaggregation of politics and economics. 
um, when for most of human history and in most of the world, the assumption is that politics is about distribution of resources and figuring out how that goes. Whereas in the United States, we've tried not to do that. And so then in within our Adventist context, what that has partly meant is that we don't we don't, we, we, A, we don't talk about economics kind of in the way that we should um, at all and, you know, or, or have any kind of robust discussion of that and that you're getting political if you start talking about that. And that is also kind of seen as being sort of a negative or divisive. So I know that's a little further afield than kind of what you want, but that your, your passage in Amos that you brought up and what you're talking about does seem to deal a lot with sort of economic justice and the various ways that that, uh, you know, applies. And so I think that has been a struggle for us in the United States and maybe it's less so other places. I don't know, but, um, you know, that, that, that being going, being okay with speaking about the way power can contribute to systems of economic injustice and the obligations of people in power, uh, regarding economic injustice. Yes. And, you know, I, Lisa, you, you know, I think you're not sort of further afield. I think you're right there, you know, in, in the text, because one of the things that you're, you're right, there is this connection between religion and economics. And, um, you know, in, in the chapter in Amos, um, there's this interesting scene between uh, him and Amaziah, who is the priest you know, the, the, the priest at Bethel. And interestingly, Amaziah says to Amos, like, look, stop this preaching and go somewhere else and earn your bread there. <laughs> and essentially what Amaziah is highlighting there is that um, Amos's message impacts um, not just Bethel, but also the, the nation. And he thinks also that Amos is economically motivated to do something. So he's like, look, if, you know, Amos, if you're looking to get paid here for a good sermon series, you need an honorarium, you know, I suggest you take this series somewhere else. Um, and, uh, and that speaks to, that speaks to then what we think Amaziah's benefit was, you know, that as a priest at Bethel, uh, where you have, you know, the elite coming through and there's all these tithe and offerings. And of course the priests, you know, in that system, they are, they are receiving some of this tithe, um, as support and upkeep and so on. And so the, this message, Amos, that you're bringing here, you know, uh, these members are not going to, you know, keep up this tithing if you, if you continue down this vein. So this, interesting scene I think highlights the the issue that we do have in some faith communities where you know those of us who are employed by the community employed by the institution are constantly navigating this uh this line between um being faithful to the calling and to the vocation uh, while recognizing that there may be economic implications for saying or teaching or embodying, um, you know, a theology of justice that may not necessarily be supported or recognized by the majority. And the question is, you know, um, 
in ultimately are we sort of Amaziahs or Amoses? You know, that ultimately is there a point that we might be called to say, like, earn your bread somewhere else, mm. you know, um, because your message is too disruptive <laughs> and this proclamation that you're carrying from God just, you know, it doesn't support the system as it is right now. And so you might just want to go somewhere else for your upkeep. Mm. Um, and, and that's, that's real. Um, and that's a, that's a question that I think any one of us who's um, working as part of the institution needs to recognize from the beginning um, that your messages may not always be supported and that may have economic implications for you, for your family, um, you know, for a group of, of people and, and, you know, and, and that's right at home in the text there. So I, I, I certainly feel like, um, Lisa, you're right there in the prophetic uh, uh, world right there. Yeah. Mm. The other thing that I think, you know, sometimes I wish the prophet spent a little bit more time on the alternative vision. You know, they use this very poetic language when it you know they're very blunt and specific when it comes to confronting the injustice and evil but then we get this beautiful metaphor but instead let justice roll down mm-hmm. you know like never-ending waters and um you know and may there be rivers of righteousness and all these kind of things yeah. and that's where i think that we should take that as our starting point mm-hmm. to and and to have that kind of prophetic imagination to borrow that great phrase from Dr. Brueggemann, mm-hmm. um, to actually have the political and economic and cultural and social imagination to to be able to imagine how things can be different. Uh, I think it's, um, it is one of the real challenges of, and I guess we can speak specifically here of Adventist theology, is that we don't spend a lot of time ma- imagining a better world. Hmm. Um, and that we actually, you know, we have this prophetic thing where we're happy to call out all the wrongs around us, but we don't spend much time on making wrongs right. And partly there's an apocalyptic bent to that where we assume we kind of even, if things are getting worse, we we assume that that makes us right um, because that's our prophetic understanding to use misuse that language perhaps. But our prophetic imagination should actually we should be if if our world is getting worse that should be seen at least in part as a failure on our behalf to offer a prophetic alternative hmm. am i overreading the hebrew prophets in that way or am i expecting more from them than i should be <laughs> <laughs> no i you know i love that you brought up this um this imagery of the water because i think you're right that there's something about god where he's calling us to get creative and there isn't you know it's it's like imagine all the possibilities that you can imagine and go and create them mm. make things happen you know move together um collaborate and participate for this. And I love this imagery of water because, you know, as they say, water is life. Mm. Um, If we think about just everything that is water from, you know, our bodies to our environment, you know, we, 
the food we eat, you know, how much of it is made up of water. It's, it's almost like, let this be your life. Let it be everything. Mm. Um, let justice be such an, uh, a focus or, you know, it's, it becomes an embodiment and the environment that we want to thrive in. And so this imagery of water calls us, I do agree, calls us to imagine all the possibilities. Um, and, you know, if we can use that phrase, great or small, mm. you know, major or minor, I think sometimes um, some of us, because of our personalities or perhaps the expectations that we put on ourselves, we think, well, if I can't be working for this cause, then I'm, you know, I'm not involved in justice. And the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, there's so much to be done. We, <laughs> we, we just, there's no point sort of fighting over projects. There's, there's so much to be done. Um, and it's it's not just even a case of looking at you know well what's the latest um, Adra need or you know is it South Sudan or is it um, Iran or is it you know it's not just about that but it's also about it's also thinking about who we are every day where we exist you know in our sort of neighborhoods and mm-hmm. where we live and what is it that we're showing up to do and to be in the world? Mm. I think if all of us make that commitment, then we are sort of coming into this call to imagine, you know, and to create from, from what we can imagine. What I know to be, you know, what I deeply believe is this, that, human beings have a great capacity to imagine causing so much pain and havoc. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, when, when somebody upsets us or something goes wrong, you know, um, well, let me just talk about myself, you know, cause, uh, Nathan and Lisa, you might be, you know, just really gracious and, and, and deep down awesome people, you know, but you, you, <laughs> but you know, you, 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 you can kind of catch yourself sometimes thinking, wow, can, did I really just conjure up being able to say this really mean thing to someone? Mm. Um, or did I, did I actually, um, imagine, you know, inflicting pain on this person because, you know, they've just been so horrible to me. And I, I want them to feel not just what they made me feel, but even more. Think about the capacity that we have as human beings individually and as communities for evil. And And then I think, well, we've used our imaginations to inflict all kinds of pain and all kinds of trauma and set in motion all kinds of toxic generational realities. Hmm. Um, So imagine what we can use our imaginations to do for justice and for righteousness and for peace Hmm. um, and for love. I, I, I think that in itself is also something for us to to consider. That's cool. 
Janice, thank you for being our prophetic voice on this episode yeah. of the podcast yeah. and for prompting our prophetic imaginations in thinking thinking beyond the injustice and looking towards you know, interrupting racism in the world around us. Thank you for your chapter in the book. Uh, it's worth a read. Uh, so I recommend anybody listening along, you know, settle in. It's the first first chapter in the book for a reason because mm -hmm. it sets the sets that platform for exploring uh, the big topic. Uh, so thank you for being with us today and uh, for your work and for your voice uh, and for sharing with us. Thank you, Nathan and Lisa. Enjoyed the conversation with you both. Lisa, thank you for being our co-host and. We'll catch you next time on another episode of A House on Fire podcast as we continue exploring this series and uh, the chapters of this book. Thank you to Adventist Peace Radio and to Adventist Voices. We'll catch you next time. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely.